Join me in God's Word in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, if you're a little unfamiliar with how to find that in Scripture, uh, the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. After that is Joshua, Judges, then the book of Ruth, which we referred to a couple of weeks ago, and then right after the book of Ruth is the book of 1 Samuel, or you can just look it up on an app on your phone or your iPad. Uh, great to be with you this morning. Before we get started, uh, I want to call your attention to some uh, posters that you've been seeing kind of popping up around the campus. Uh, a date night with a guy by the name of Joe Recca. Joe, you may not know his name. He's a bit of a rising star right now. He's been on BET. He's a brother in Christ, so it's going to be clean, but he's a funny guy as well. And on April the 8th, that evening, uh, we want an opportunity. This is, uh, this is actually Pastor Chris's work, along with several of our, our um, folks that are involved in our marriage ministry here, trying to build strong marriages to just give our couples, and you don't have to be married uh, to be a part of this, you'd be welcome to come in a night where you can come in, enjoy an elegant three-course meal prepared by our own chef, Scott, uh, and then enjoy an evening with Joe Recca and also have your kids taken care of. So uh, it's $60 per couple. If you went down to Charlestown, you're probably looking at 60 bucks a pop just for the show. This is per couple, and this is all-inclusive for everything. Uh, that said, we also know that sometimes money is a bit of an issue, and we don't want a lack of financial ability to be the only thing that keeps you away. And so right through these doors in front of me, uh, there's going to be a sign-up table out there. If you just kind of lean over, if you'd like some help with that, if money's going to be an issue, just let the folks behind the table know, and they can get you at least signed up, uh, and we can get you some help. Now, that said... Um, we, we really don't need to go broke doing this. So if you're planning a trip to Acapulco this summer, please don't tell us that finances are a problem, okay? Uh, but if finances really are a problem, we don't want that to keep it, uh, to keep you away. We'd love to have you on this night. I will just be, be back from Vietnam. And I'll be back in the country. We'll have been back in the country for less than 24 hours, and I will be jet-lagged beyond recognition. So even if you don't think Joe is funny, I probably will be. Uh, and so Amy and I will be there, and we'd love to see you on April the 8th. And again, right through those doors, you'll see the cover, beautifully covered table back there uh, as we plan a wonderful, wonderful night for couples. All right, First Samuel, if you've caught us, if this is your first time visiting with us uh, this year, you've caught us in the middle of a series called The Story. We started this on January the 8th. Our aim is to try to wrap it up around the second Sunday of June, and the objective is to move from Genesis all the way to Revelation, obviously only hitting the high points, but to try to get all of this done, give you a sense of the broader storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in about six months so that you'll have a handle for how that storyline fits together, how every character ties in with every other character, how every story ties in with every other story. And to give you a little bit of a review of where we've been, uh, we'll start with the period of beginnings. In Genesis 1 to 11, we see where we come from, that God created us through our first parents, Adam and Eve, in his image and likeness, placed us in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it and to fulfill the purpose for which we were created. We also see the beginning of all of the evil in the world, whether it's warfare or murder or violence or some other kind of societal ill, we can trace that back much like a scientist tries to trace back a pandemic to patient zero. Uh, the Bible actually traces every problem we have in this world back to patient zero. His name is Adam. He rebelled against God. That rebellion in the garden caused the unraveling of the entire cosmos and sin began to enter the world and so our parents are put outside the garden. 
We also see the beginnings there in those first 11 chapters of God's promise, what he's going to do about this problem. He said in Genesis 3.15, I will initiate warfare between you, speaking to the serpent, the devil who had tempted our first parents, and the seed of the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he will eventually crush your head. And so the rest of the storyline of the Bible then begins to be about this seed, this promise of a Messiah who's going to come into the world. And then we see the flood narrative and we see all of the, the consequences of a, of a world that is filled with sin. All of that in the period of the beginnings. And it is then that we move to the period of the patriarchs, Genesis 12 to 50. That's the point in history where we start to see God initiate in human history this plan to bring that seed into the world. And he does that through four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so we see the biographies of these men and, and how that ties into this larger meta narrative of everything that God is doing in human history. By the time we get to the end of Genesis, God's people are in Egypt. Not too long afterwards, they become slaves in Egypt. And that takes us into the period of Israelite slavery and deliverance. This is where God raises up another leader, a man by the name of Moses. And Moses delivers by God's power his people out of the hand of the hands of the Egyptians. He is given the law in the Sinai wilderness. He is extrapolating that law for them in the book of Leviticus, restating it in the book of Deuteronomy. And we see God's people finally out from under slavery, delivered, ready to cross the promised land. That then takes us into the period of conquest and settlement, what we've covered for the last two weeks. I covered Joshua's life and, and story a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Chris knocked it out of the park last week dealing with the book of Judges and that period of history where we begin to see that even though they have the law of God and they have every resource available to them, they continue to live in slavery. They continue to live in sin because it was a day, the Bible says, when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So period after period after period of history, and now we're being brought into this final, this next period rather, the period of the united monarchy of Israel. That's where we begin today. And it all starts, it all starts with a major character by the name of Samuel. Samuel is a critical figure. He's a transitional figure in the story of the Bible because he connects the last days of the judges and the first days of the king. He bridges the gap between those two periods. But the interesting thing about this story is that it doesn't begin with Samuel. It actually begins with Samuel's mother, a young lady by the name of Hannah. And when the story of Samuel opens up, this young lady has a womb that is not bearing fruit. She has no children. She wants children dearly, badly, and she cannot have them. And one of the things that we're reminded of in a situation like that is if Psalm 127, which tells us, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Here's what Hannah does. She prays and she asks God to give her a child. And she says, if you will give me that child, I will give that child right back to you. Now you may, if you're a regular part of the covenant family, you see where occasionally we do a baby blessing or some might call it a baby dedication where we bring the parents and their newborn children up here on the stage. And, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of chaos usually because we're trying to control them and they're running all over the place and they're screaming and everybody, everybody's having a great time because we know that those children are a blessing. And, and, and everything we do in a moment like that is patterned after this moment because we realize, or at least we should, as Hannah does, that our children are not a right. They do not belong to us. 
They belong to God. And our responsibility as parents is to raise them in the fear of that God so, to, so as to more greatly ensure to the best of our ability that they are serving him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength by the time that they become adults. That's, that's our calling. Again, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Eventually, I'm sailing them out into the world. Now, let me just admit to you as a father, I don't always think of sailing them out into the world in that particular context. Okay, how many of you would admit to me that you do not always, when you think of your children, immediately think of the word blessing? Okay, you can be honest, all right? That doesn't make us right, that's a wrong way to look at it, but you know, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. And I gotta tell you, sometimes with my three, I love them, uh, but, and, I, and I'm not embarrassing them or outing them because they're not doing anything that your kids don't already do, right? They make a mess, they misbehave, they pick at each other, they get in fights. The older they get, the more they cost. We were out on a date the other night. I'm thinking, all right, get some time alone together with my woman and the kids are at home and we're not even having to think about them. And where do we end up? Target. Because we are that kind of wild and crazy couple. And let me tell you, we shut that sucker down. We did. We shut Target down. It was amazing. And we're walking along. And why were we in Target? Because my wife said, the kids, I mean all of them, need new clothes. And I'm just thinking, wow, blessing is not what came to my mind at that moment. Okay? And so when I think of all these things, I think, man, this is, you know, I love them. I really do. I'd die for them. But I'd also kill them sometimes. And there are days when you just, you think as a dad, you know, one day they really will be out of my house. And this woman that I love, that I have spent my life with raising these children, we will have time together. And listen, it really is okay to look forward to those years when it's just you and your wife, okay? And you really do need to invest in that relationship with your spouse so that when your kids do leave the house, you're not just two strangers looking at one another. There's a very healthy side of that. But I also have to tell you, there's a, there can be a very unhealthy side to looking at this empty nest thing because many, many times when I am tempted to see the most blessed part of my life as something in the future, so many times when as a dad, I've been tempted to look at a, at a story like this in contrast, think myself, you know, I'm going to be really, really blessed one of these days. Every single time I think about how wonderful it's going to be to have an empty nest. God reminds me of a woman who had an empty womb. And it brings me back to a place where I have to realize I don't have a right to my kids. I have no right to them. And the reason for that is they're not mine. They are God's. And they are given to me to raise them up. All of this understanding originates in history at this moment and God hears Hannah's voice and she has a child and she names him Samuel which means the Lord has heard for this child I pray first Samuel chapter 1 and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him therefore I give if you're using the ESV like your pastor I still think it's a wonderful translation but it's a horrible one right here because it uses the word lent and that not only, I think, is a, is a misunderstanding of what the Hebrew conveys here, uh, it's also a misunderstanding of the concept that lending something to somebody means you own it. This child doesn't belong to Hannah. No more than my children belong to me. They belong to God. The sense is that we give them back to the Lord as long as, she, as he lives. Hannah says he is given to the Lord. And so Hannah is given this child Samuel. Samuel, when he is about six or seven years old, she takes him back to the temple and she gives him 
to a man by the name of Eli the priest who raises him and who trains him. And it is not long living in that house before young Samuel begins to realize that he's living among dishonorable people. Men who have the title priest, but whose character as an, is an insult to their office. Two of these people are the sons of Eli. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. And the Bible tells us that when Eli was very old, he kept hearing that all his, what all his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all of these people. So here you, here you have people, you have men who are supposed to be priests, who are supposed to serve the people of Israel. But rather than serving them, they are using the power of their office to abuse the people, more specifically their sisters, the women that they are supposed to be serving. They are instead using the influence and the power of their office to take physical advantage of those women. And all the way up into the future, 3,000 years later, we still unfortunately have men who call themselves men of God, who have reverend behind their name, who have doctor behind their name, who are called pastor and they can't keep their pants on and they can't keep their hands out of the offering plate. Still happens today. It is a blight on the body of Christ and on people of faith to have people of such low character in such a high office. This is the, the first time, but it will not be the last, that Samuel runs into such people. And Eli, even though he himself is not participating in this, is complicit in it. Why? Because he does nothing about it. And so as Samuel receives his call to be a prophet to God's people, his first assignment is to speak a word of condemnation toward the man that raised him. Think about how difficult that has to be. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in all in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I am about to punish this house forever for the iniquity that he knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house, these have to be some of the scariest words in all of scripture, shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever. So Samuel is called as God's prophet. This is his first assignment. Go to your mentor. Go to the one who invested his life in you. Go to the one that you love dearly. Go to the one that you've looked to like a father figure and say to him, your sons have sinned horribly. You have basically ignored it and let it go. You've allowed basically sexual abuse to go on under your nose and you did nothing about it. And the result is that the very atonement that you provide to the people of Israel will not apply to you. It will not apply to you. This had to be a heartbreaking thing for Samuel to deliver this news. How horrifying would that have been? And the brothers, not long after this word from Samuel, go into battle against the Philistine army and they are killed. And the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. And upon hearing the news, Eli can't take it. And he falls over backwards and he dies. It's a very tragic way to see someone in their life like that. Tragic life of a guy who did so much good, but who will not be remembered for the good. He will be remembered for the bad that he did. Everybody in this, in this room probably knows the name Joe Paterno. If you're a football fan, you think of a couple of different things. If you're not a football fan, you can only think of one thing. 
But even if you are a football fan and you can think of two things, that one thing that you hold in common with your brothers and sisters in the room who aren't football fans is that he ignored sexual abuse of children that went on right underneath his nose. He did nothing about it. And look what happened to this guy. His win-loss record doesn't matter anymore, does it? This is Eli. This is his record at the end of the day. A man who did so much good, but who is remembered for the sin he ignored that brought harm to so many and the punishment that he and his sons paid for. The man who is responsible for raising up Samuel is now not going to get an opportunity to see Samuel as a leader. That is Samuel's first assignment as a prophet. And it prepares him for some other very tough assignments. Because by the time we get to chapter 7, Samuel is the final judge in Israel. He's leading the Israelites in battle. But the men of Israel come together because Samuel's own sons aren't following after him. And they make the following request. Then all the Israel, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Now, there is a lot in this text that, that we need to unpack. Because remember the tabernacle? God is always with you. Remember the bread of presence in the tabernacle? God will always provide for you. Remember the lampstand in the tabernacle? God will always give you light. He will always give you knowledge. He will always show you the way. All of your provision comes from your real king. His name is Yahweh. You follow him and you will never go lacking. Remember the second commandment, no images, no people, no idols, nothing of any kind to worship in my place. And Samuel tries to warn the people here. He says, you don't want this. Let me tell you what's going to happen. This guy's going to be overbearing. He's going to tax you heavily. He will conscript your sons into the army. He will use them as cannon fodder. This is not going to end very well. Israel up until this point had been a theocracy, which meant the people of God, though they had leaders and judges, were ultimately under their true king, which was the Lord their God. They haven't followed the king they have. Remember what Pastor Chris talked about last week in the book of Judges, all of the carnage and all of the bloodshed and all of the idolatry and all of the rebellion against God. They haven't followed the king they have. What on earth would make them think that they would follow a human king? And yet they continue to push. They continue to push. It's sort of like saying, you know what? There's a lot of evil out there in the world. I'll tell you what. We'll pass a bunch of laws making that kind of activity illegal. And that will solve the problem. They're lawbreakers. Lawbreakers, by definition, don't obey laws. Right? That's essentially what this is. We're not following the king we have. Let's get a new king. That must be the problem. That must be the problem. One of my friends told me a while back, he had a, a colleague that he was working with that was kind of getting older and he wasn't feeling very well. And he went to the doctor and, and the blood panel came back and it was just horrible. The triglycerides were off the charts. The blood sugar was out of control. Everything was just horrible. And, and, and my friend said, well, what, what did he tell you to do? He said, well, he told me I got to be on a real strict diet. I got to walk a certain number of steps a day. I got to get my exercise. He's going to put me on meds, but he doesn't think I need to stay on them because long term they're not really healthy for me. He's just going to, you know, the blood pressure and the blood sugar and the cholesterol cholesterol. We got to get some of that under control so I don't have a heart attack or a stroke and die immediately. But then once I get it under control, he said, I got to do all these other things. And my life's going to be really, really hard for a long, long time because I'm going to have to change my lifestyle habits. And my friend said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to get another doctor. 
Yeah, that, that's what's happening here. Decades and decades and decades of disobedience and repent and a lack of repentance. And all of a sudden, they think their answer is we need a new king. We need another king. And the Lord said to Samuel, finally grants their wish, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. They've rejected me. And so Saul then gets picked out, and he is anointed king, and the period of the United Monarchy begins. Then Samuel, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is he who shall restrain my people. And then a few verses later, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be a prince? over his people, Israel. And so from this point forward, we have two offices that begin to be established and they start to track together. One is the king and the other is the prophet. At this point, we have the king who is Saul and the prophet whose name is Samuel. A generation later, as we'll see next week, the king's name is David and the prophet's name is Nathan. And the prophet is there. He's not there to buddy-buddy with the king. He's not there to do anything except this. He's also not there to run the kingdom in behalf of the king. He is there to remind the king that there is a higher king. All right? If you don't have someone, whether it's in the Oval Office or in Westminster or, 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 or at Windsor Castle or, or wherever it is, if you don't have someone playing that role to a national leader, you don't have a prophet. Okay? So whether it's Joshua Du Bois and Jeremiah Wright with President Obama, or whether it's Robert Jeffers and, and others with Donald Trump, you got what you have is not prophets. You got fanboy preachers who gather around the guy and tell him how great he is. That is not what national leaders need. They need a prophet who will yell at them regardless of whether or not they share the particular political party to which he belongs. And this is what you see faithfully executed in the lives of both Samuel and in Nathan. Martin Luther King reminds us of this in our own generation. The church must be reminded it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state, which is another way of saying it must not abdicate its conscience to the state. Never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. Those words were uttered just a tad over 50 years ago. I'll leave it to you to decide whether or not that prophecy has already come true. This is where we are. This is where we are. And at first in Saul's life, we see some really good qualities in him. Saul brings some great qualities. Number one, he is a phenomenal military leader. One of the greatest examples of this comes in chapters 10 and 11 of 1 Samuel. The Ammonites had threatened to take away part of the land that belonged to the Hebrews at a place called Jabesh-Gilead, and they were going to destroy everything. They were going to commit holy war themselves, kill all of the Hebrew people, but they offered the Hebrews an opportunity for a treaty. They said, this is what we'll do. We'll let you remain alive and we'll let you live here, but you must first let us gouge out the right eye of all of your men so that they are marked as our slaves and you will live here as our slaves. And thinking that they had no other choice, the people of Jabesh Gilead said, okay, we'll do that. And when the word of this reaches Saul, 
he says, when, when it reaches Saul, he takes an animal, a donkey. Now, if you've been with us and tracking with us for this whole series, you'll remember that part of, a, of cutting a covenant actually required taking an animal, a donkey or some other similar kind of animal, and cutting that animal in half, not front to back, nose to tail, right? And the thing falls apart, and there's just blood and guts everywhere, and you walk, rather than just shaking hands and looking at one another or signing a legal contract, you walk between those bloody parts of an animal looking at one another and that is your way of saying I have struck a covenant with you and may I become like this dead animal if I do not keep my side of the covenant okay so that's the idea of covenant Saul then capitalizing on that takes a donkey cuts it into 12 bloody chunks sends it express mail to be opened up by the various tribes of Israel and it is his way of saying, you will be like this donkey if you do not join with us and set your brothers and sisters free. And so they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. This is what you call taking care of business. And Saul is phenomenal at it. He is a strong warrior. He is a powerful military leader. Here's something else that he's good at. He's good at appointing leadership. Look at verse uh, 52 of 1 Samuel 14. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. So Saul's not only a strong leader himself, he has an eye for young men who would be able to be leaders in his stead. And he can raise up leaders. So this is a leader's leader. This is a guy who really is all about leadership. And that's what it's all about, right? Yeah, it's all about leadership. Even one well-known Christian personality is, is, is known for saying, everything rises and falls on leadership. Uh, and, and it is true in a sense. I mean, it's possible. You can, be, you can be godly and righteous and humble, but if you're not capable of leading people, you really shouldn't be put in a position of leadership. That's not calling you a bad person or saying that you're, worse than, that you're worse than someone else. It's just saying God's gifted all of us in particular ways. And if you don't have exemplary skills to be able to lead other people, you just shouldn't be in a position of high leadership. That's, that's common sense. But the other side of this, we don't want to miss as well. If you are not godly and humble and righteous, it really doesn't matter how great of a leader you are, eventually that horrible character will catch up to you. And it will capture you, and it will also ruin not just you, but the people who are under your charge. Bad character can destroy a lot of things. It's like, it's why we're here at Covenant. There are certain uh, behaviors, dispositions, attitudes that disqualify you to lead. I just, I just spoke with 14 young men this past Thursday. They were here in the building, various churches from around the region, all these guys looking in, in various different ways, aspiring to start new churches. And we spent four hours together. A solid 25% of that time was spent in 1 Timothy 3. Why? Because if you don't have godly character, you need to go ahead and leave. Okay? Because I have spent way too much time over the years in the business that I have been in watching guys who can preach the doors off a barn, watching guys who can raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, watching guys who can quote unquote get it done but they can't keep their pants on and they destroy God's church. Because they're put into a position of leadership with the, when they do not have the accompanying character 
to lead God's people. That's what we see in the life of Saul. He's a phenomenal leader. And so God's people begin to look to him, not even realizing that they're looking to a man with horrible character. And we see this character come out in four primary ways. The first is in something I'll call the situation with the oath. In 1 Samuel 14, we read that the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, and so Saul laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So think about this for, for a minute. How smart is this? You've got a regiment, you've got a corps of men who are tired and they're hungry, and your orders to them are nobody eats and nobody sleeps until our enemies are dead. Well, that's just stupid. All right? And it's driven by the same kind of, of aspiration, sinful aspiration and manipulation that we begin to see in Saul. Here's the thing, though. Saul's own son, Jonathan, apparently doesn't get the word. And when he brings his own men into a flow of honey, he eats it. And now this huge controversy arises over whether or not Jonathan should die because he has disobeyed the orders of the king. And Saul, Jonathan's own father, is on the side of those who think that Jonathan should die. He is so driven by his own agenda, so lacking in solid, godly character that he would do something like this to his own son over something so stupid as an order to tell hungry, tired men not to sleep or eat until his enemies have been avenged. And the people said to Saul as a result, chapter 14, verse 45, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground for he has worked with God to this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. The situation with the oath. Here's a second example of bad character. He usurps the role of the priest. Back in chapter 13, we see a situation where Saul had gathered with his army at Gilgal and he's waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice so that they can go into battle. The problem is Samuel's running a little bit late. And so Saul decides to take it upon himself to offer the sacrifice rather than having the rightful person, the priest, make that sacrifice. And some of you may be sitting there wondering, well, what's the big deal? Well, if you remember why God gave the priesthood to begin with, you will remember God gave the priesthood to teach his people, Israel, that there are only certain ways that sin can be mediated for. And so if you are not a priest living at this time and place and you offer a sacrifice, even though you are not a priest, what you're doing is perverting the message of redemption that God intends to display, not just to his people, Israel, but to the world. And so when Samuel finds, finally shows up, he says, what's going on? Saul basically says, well, I couldn't wait on you. And the result is, Samuel says these words, now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That had to hurt, don't you think? Because what does that say to Saul? You don't have the heart of your God. The Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This was a sin so vile and so offensive to God that it was the thing that cost Saul his reign. Here's the third thing, a refusal to obey in holy war. In chapter 15, God had instructed Saul after the battle with the Amalekites to destroy them and destroy everything they possessed. But Saul gets in there and there's some pretty good flocks in there. I find it interesting he didn't have any problem killing all the humans 
But when he got to the animals, he thought, well, there's some, there's some pretty nice herds here. Maybe we'll keep those to ourselves. After all, we can use some of that to sacrifice to the Lord. It's amazing how you can justify your sin, isn't it? That's like a drug dealer going, well, I tithe off of it. That, that doesn't cancel out what you did, dude. It really doesn't, all right? You say, will you take it? Yeah, sure, we'll take it. The devil's had it long enough. But you, that doesn't excuse what you're doing, all right? But this is Saul's mentality, right? The end justifies the means. And so Samuel confronts him. Did you do everything? Did you destroy everything? And I can almost see Saul going, yeah. In the background. What's that sound? Well, it's like this. I spared some of the flock. Why'd you do that? Didn't God tell you to kill everything? Well, I, I, we can use it for sacrifice. This is Samuel's response. As the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Well, I know that he said it, but, but I think it'd be better to do it this way. Pragmatism. To obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Yeah, think about that for a minute. To do something that God expressly said do not do. To refuse to do something that God expressly said, this is what you're to do. God looks at that rebellion exactly the same way that he looks at certain kinds of witchcraft and occultic activity. Presumption as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is Saul. But it continues to get worse. It continues to get worse. The big end to Saul's life takes him to a very, very dark place when he consults a medium. Someone who claims to be able to communicate with the dead. By the time we get to chapter 28, Samuel is dead. The Philistine armies are knocking at the door. They're posing a national security threat to God's people. Saul begins to pray, but there's no immediate answer that's coming. Now, there are times when you pray and it feels like your prayers just hit the ceiling and they come back on your head and God is testing you. Just because you don't feel like God is hearing your prayers doesn't mean that you're in sin. But sometimes, particularly if you go a long, long time and you go, why is God not hearing my prayer? Check yourself and make sure you're not living in rebellion against him. Because that's what Saul is doing here. He's living in rebellion. He's living out of pragmatism. He's leaning into his leadership gifts rather than leaning into the Lord, his God. And he's wondering why his prayers aren't being heard. And he's wondering why he's not getting answers. And he's wondering why God doesn't speak. And so finally he gets desperate. And he said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and and inquire of her. He disguises himself when he goes out to meet her. That should tell you That he knows what he's doing. And that he knows what he's doing is wrong. And apparently, this woman is a fraud. I got a call once, it's been probably 20 years ago, but it was back when they used to do those 1-900 numbers to tell you your future. They were actually marketing this. And they said, you know, for like $8.99 a minute or whatever, we will tell you your future. And I thought, I can tell you my future if I say yes to this. I'm going to have a huge phone bill next month. 
that's going to be in my future. And, and I'm, I already have a relationship with the, the one who wrote out my future before time even started. So I'm not sure why I would need to talk to you. A lot of these people are frauds. This woman apparently is one as well. How do I know that? Because Samuel, as she tries to call him up from the dead, he actually appears and she freaks. She's like, oh my God, this, it's never actually worked before. And she freaks out. And Samuel's first words are, why have you disturbed me? You ever been bothered by work while you were on vacation? This is worse. All right. Be thankful that your company will never actually be, call, be able to call you back from the dead, at least. All right? But he says, why, why have you disturbed me? Why have you disturbed me? And rather than giving Saul the intelligence report that he wants, he pronounces final condemnation on the first king of Israel. Tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. This one, Saul, has cost you your life. It has cost your son their lives, and it will cost the kingdom dearly. A humiliating defeat. That's what's going to happen. Now, why is that? Why would God speak so harshly? Well, we have to go back to Leviticus. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. That's serious. That's hardcore. Why is that? Why is this stuff so ser serious? The law expressly forbid consulting these people, participating in these pagan practices, and primarily it was for this reason, because in doing so, you're placing your faith and the hope of your future in something other than the God of Israel. We don't have that problem today, though, right? This evil comes in multiple forms today. Communication with the dead, witchcraft, other kinds of cult, cult activity remains an overt, demonic way of placing your trust in something other than your creator. Tarot cards, Ouija boards, horoscopes, lucky numbers, numerology, including, by, by the way, the kind of numerology used by Christian Bible teachers who try to crack codes in the Bible. All of it nonsense, most of it demonic. Stay away from that stuff. You have no business with that stuff. If you have any of that nonsense in your house, get it out. Get it out. I cannot tell you the spiritual carnage that I have seen over 25 years of ministry that started with a Ouija board. Get it out. All right? Sometimes it's just wrong and you get rid of it. No child of God has any business messing with any of this stuff. And it's why Samuel, when he shows up, says, you're done. You're done. I can't have the leader of the whole nation of God's people spreading this kind of nonsense. Setting this as the kind of example that needs to be set for my people. Get rid of this stuff. This is undoubtedly one of the darkest moments in Saul's life. A life that begins with such hope and promise. And it ends so tragically. Because the very next day. He's killed. So what do we learn about the reign of Saul? What do we learn from it? Number one, character matters. You getting that from this story? 
doing the right thing is more important than what kind of spotlight you have on yourself or how many likes you have on that latest Facebook post or, or what kind of platform you've established for yourself or how big of a star you can be or how great of a leader you might be seen at work or even in the church. Character is who you are when nobody's looking and eventually that stuff bubbles up to the top. It matters. And God will eventually take down every leader who doesn't have the commensurate character. This isn't the last we're going to hear of Saul. Next week when we get into King David's life, we're going to see, kind of rewind a bit, begin looking at that, that, that really tense relationship that builds up between Saul and David. But the story of Saul is the story of an immensely talented leader whose reign was a miserable failure, whose life came to a tragic end. All because of character. Character matters. Number two, the end doesn't justify the means. Good Americans worship pragmatism. It's just a fact. That doesn't mean we can't be practical or that we can't be shrewd or even sometimes pragmatic in the body of Christ. But it does mean that sometimes when principles of righteousness hang in the balance, faithful followers of Jesus just say no. They just say no. Even if it looks like it's going to cost us everything. Sometimes we just say no. Number three, human leaders can give us a false sense of security. Remember all that Pastor Chris covered with us last week? God's people fall into sin and idolatry. God sells them into slavery. They cry out to God for help. He redeems them from their enemies. And the sin cycle starts all over again. As a dog returns to his vomit, so does the fool return to his folly. Over and over and over and over throughout generations has revealed Israel's real need. She needs to repent and she needs to turn to her God. But rather than doing the very thing that would bring her healing and bring her wholeness, what she does is she starts to look for a different king, a different ruler, a different way of living, a different approach to life, something else that might be the issue. If we just have the right leader, things will get better. Right? We, we don't have that problem, do we? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Finally got a good president. Oh, we finally got a good governor. Oh, we finally got somebody that'll, that'll save us. We're making the same mistake the Israelites made when they brought that horribly low character, unqualified individual named Saul and put him into a position of leadership. How about in the church? You think the Western church has a problem with this? As you know, I covered this with our church planners on Thursday. Among the 35 industrialized democracies in the world right now, there is no identifiable awakening or church planting movement among any of them, and there hasn't been for over 100 years. Did you know that? You know where all the growth's happening? Africa, Asia, the Middle East. Oh, you mean that Middle East? Yeah, that Middle East. Yeah. You know why? Because people in that region of the world know what it means to repent and be true to the Lord their God. And I'm not saying that there aren't faithful, godly people here in the United States and in Western Europe. There are. I'm not saying they're not wonderful, godly churches. But if you will look at the Western church as a whole and the kind of nonsense that we think is the answer. Better marketing, a better logo, a better brand, 
better, better techniques, sharper mailers, a hotter band, lasers, bring a tank out on the stage, put a bed on the stage and get into it with my wife and scandalize everything, put everything on television. This is what we got to do. We got to have big stars. We got to have celebrities. We got to have megamania. We got to have consumerism. Because that'll solve it. It couldn't possibly be that maybe the entire Western church is so obsessed with itself that it needs to realign itself so that we are obsessed with our God. Revival comes through Jesus being lifted up and made famous. Not a church, not a pastor, not a Christian celebrity, not a concert that raises up the hair on the back of your neck. Jesus The Western church needs to repent. But we won't do it. We won't do it. We'll we'll jiggle the handle. We'll do this. We'll do that. And then when things don't go wrong, we'll blame a Disney movie over it and gay people. And all the while, God's saying to us, same thing he said back during the days of Saul. Through the mouth of Samuel, repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Stop the nominal Christian nonsense. Stop living life in your own eyes, the way, however you want to live it, and start living for God. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ. It's the same message. But we get lulled into a false sense of security. Here's the final thing. The reason we get lulled into a false sense of security is because we forget there's no human king that can replace the real one. You you can't do it. Israel had a king. His name was Yahweh. And they rejected him for Saul. A thousand years after these events, their real king would wrap himself in human flesh, would come through the womb of a virgin, would live in absolute perfection. He would open blind eyes. He would raise the dead. He would make the lame to walk. He would give his life as an atonement, as a substitute for sinners. He rose from the dead. Their true king didn't give up on them. And yet John 1 tells us he came into his own, his own people still, after a thousand years, did not receive him. Two thousand years after that, Jew or Gentile, there is a king who rules over this world. And the overwhelming majority of people in the world, including, sad to say, many in the Western church, do not receive him. Here's the great news of the gospel. To those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. This, doesn't, this, isn't, this isn't whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or some other ethnicity. This isn't out of your will because you're better or smarter than somebody else. This isn't the will of man. This is God's grace coming to you in the person of Jesus. And you pledge your allegiance to the true king. And it's interesting when you see the people throughout the world, the kind of people who actually do that. I love this quote from Scott Bessenecker from InterVarsity Fellowship. Our faith builds a world where prisoners and prostitutes, outcasts and oppressed, occupy the seats of honor. These are Christianity's new architects. And God is building his kingdom through the person and the work of Jesus. That's what he's doing. Many in our own time, again, reject him for something that looks better because we've got our own view of what we want. We've got our own view of what's going to satisfy us. We've got our own view of what's going to fix everything. 
And all the while, he invites us to turn from those lesser things and embrace him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Don't let your life end like Saul's. Turn away from whatever's holding you back and give everything you have to the real king of Israel, the real king of the world, a man named Jesus. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for the story, even the bad ones, even the tragic ones, that remind us of where all of us are headed unless we turn to you. Father, I, I, I don't want a weak body. I want a strong one. I want a powerful one. But everything in your word testifies to the fact that we are powerful on our knees and that it is your power that is perfected in our weakness. And Lord, we need repentance. We need to just surrender everything to you. And so I ask in the name of Jesus that you would make us a people who would do that. Lord, that that would start with individuals just recognizing that they need to put their trust in you. They need to let everything else go. And they need to give you everything. Trust you with everything. Obey you in all things, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Father, that those individuals will make a church that will powerfully impact this region and this world. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.